And this morning, our reading is verses 14 through 19, but our text is found in verses 14 and 15. Oftentimes think that some people are saying, well, why are we going so slow? And my only response would be, what's your rush? It's a lot to learn. Genesis 3:14. And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, of course, pointing all the way back to the beginning of this chapter, the introduction of the seduction and temptation into sin that brought man into disobedience to God. Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Unto the woman he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. And unto Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree, of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it, cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee. And thou shalt eat the herb of the field. And the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread. Till thou return unto the ground. For out of it was thou taken. For dust thou art. And unto dust shalt thou return. Shall we pray? <clears throat> Father, before we get into our study this morning, we do want to lift up Catherine and her son Ricky and ask, Father, your blessings upon them, especially, Lord, that you'll bring healing to Ricky's body as well as to his mind and to his heart and to his emotions. Father, we ask that, Lord, you will protect Catherine on her way to Camp Pendleton and Lord, that uh, in their meeting, that will be a tremendous encouragement to Ricky. We lift them up to you because they're part of our fellowship. They're part of our family here. And we would ask, Father, that you would just continue, Lord, to bring uh, that sense of, of, uh, of hope and completion of the healing that he so needs today. We ask now, Father, for the anointing and blessing of your Holy Spirit to come upon each and every one of us <clears throat> as we take now the time to read and to study your word. Father, we look for your wisdom. We look for understanding. Not only, Father, to grow in, in the knowledge of your word, but Lord, to grow in the practice of your word. That we, Lord God, may carry the light of the glory of Christ in us. Ever thankful, Lord God, of the blessing of salvation. Through your Son, our Lord and Savior, our Redeemer, 
our deliverer. In his name, in the name of Yeshua, in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. I'd like for you all to consider <clears throat> the importance of God's questions toward mankind in general and his questions to each of us specifically. Now, if you've studied with us for any amount of time, you know that uh, I pose a lot of questions as we examine God's Word. Questions posed over such important and significant issues help us in a number of ways. Questions help us to think about the subject matter. They help us to scrutinize and to inspect our own thoughts and our own ideas. And they help us to realize how much we do know or how much we don't know for that matter. The questions can also put us in a position of answering honestly and openly concerning cause and effect issues in our own personal lives. What I mean by that is actions that lead to certain consequences, whether good or bad, whether right or wrong, whether godly or ungodly. Now, when we were last in Genesis chapter 3, the Lord God had posed questions to Adam and Eve. After the serpent's seduction of Eve, after the sin of selfish disobedience willfully committed by Adam and his wife, and the shame which the sinful couple now experienced, he asked them questions. In Genesis 3 verse 9, the Lord asked Adam, where art thou? That wasn't a matter of gaining information for God. God knew exactly where Adam was. The question was, where are you, Adam, when, when it comes to me? Where are you when it comes to what I have commanded you? But it was a very pertinent question. It's a question that God asks us all the time, especially when we're straying from the faith, especially when we're walking away from the truths that God has given us. Where are you? In verse 11, after Adam answers the Lord, while I'm over here hiding, I realize I'm naked, and God asked him, who told you you were naked? Verse 11, hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldst not eat? Questions. When confronting, Eve, when confronting Eve, in verse 13, God asks her this question. What is this that thou hast done? Are you beginning to realize the importance of God asking questions to us? I have to tell you right now, it's a good thing. It's a good thing when God asks us questions. Because it makes us search our heart. And I'll tell you why it's a good thing. Uh, it's, it's going to take us a little time to go back and review, but uh, I'll give you that answer in just a moment to that question that is posed to you. As we enter into this new section or this next section of chapter 3, we're presented with a distinction in regards to questions. As the Lord now deals with the sentences, and when I say the sentences, I'm not talking about grammar. I'm talking about the sentences that are being imposed upon 
the serpent and upon Adam and upon Eve for their sins. And so there's a presentation of a distinction in regard to questions as the Lord deals with the senses now to be imposed upon the serpent and Adam and Eve. Let me add to this thought as a point of review where we've been. In entering chapter 3 we have moved from the sanctity of the garden. These are all points of reminder. We are moved from the sanctity of the garden because as we enter into chapter 3, there's still perfection. There's still everything the way God had intended it to be. But we move from the sanctity of the garden into the strategy of the serpent. And we began to see him strategize, as it were, his plan. Because the strategy of the serpent led to the seduction by the serpent of Eve which would eventually lead, of course, to the sin of Adam and Eve. And the sin of Adam and Eve ultimately leads to the shame that is revealed to Adam and Eve. All of a sudden their eyes are open, they see themselves as naked, and then they are ashamed. And so God asks questions to Adam and Eve, but when we get into verse 14, what does it say? It says, And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. The distinction I mentioned in regards to questions is in how the Lord dealt with the serpent as opposed to how he dealt with with a man and the woman. To Adam and Eve, he asked them questions. Where are you, Adam? Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree? What have you done? But to the serpent, there were no questions asked. That's the distinction. To the serpent, there was no questions, or there were no questions asked. Why? Why the difference? Well, it's a significant difference. Why didn't the Lord question the serpent? In fact, why didn't he question Satan who animated the serpent? Because we know that the serpent was possessed in a sense by Satan himself. Why didn't God ask him questions? There's a very simple reason. Because there was nothing to teach him. There was nothing to teach the serpent. Why did God ask us questions? Why did God ask man questions? Because we're still learning. Man was still being taught. That's the good thing here. You see, God refused to discuss, to confer, or to parley with this enemy at all. God refused to do it. Now granted, if you go to the book of Job, you realize in the first couple of chapters that God does take up a conversation with Satan. 
But that's for another time in another situation. But here at the very onset of man's creation, created in the image of God, all of a sudden we meet this serpent who in fact is Satan and everything that man had been commanded, which was only really one commandment, everything that they were commanded was broken in one moment. God refused to discuss with the enemy anything at all. Because as we've already studied as to the origin of sin and Satan, this enemy rebelled against God. We read it in the books of Isaiah and the book of, uh, of Ezekiel. This enemy rebelled against God. He took a third of the angels with him and thus there was only the pronouncement of judgment for him. There was nothing for him to learn anymore. He was the enemy of God. He was the enemy of man. He was the enemy of woman. In essence, he was the enemy of all mankind. He was the enemy of everything that God created to be good. Nothing to learn anymore. The only thing he was worthy of was judgment. And judgment by God. And so, God judged him then... And there, and declared war on Satan. You talk about beginnings, this was the first war. God declared war on Satan. And this is why he remains labeled to this day, the enemy. Satan will always be the enemy. Satan will never repent. He'll never have remorse. He'll never care. He'll always hate. He'll always destroy. He'll always steal. He'll always kill. That is his nature. That is what God is warring against. But here's the thing. The sentence given by God to the serpent is first and foremost a declaration of war against the one who introduced the lie to mankind. We've talked about the lie. It's very essential that we understand what the lie is. Of course, going back to the first five verses of chapter 3. The fact is we are still, as mankind, reeling from its influence upon the human race. We are still reeling from the influence of the lie. What is the lie? Just for purposes of review and for those who may have not been with us when we studied this. Genesis 3 verses 1 through 5. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, yea, have God said. Those underlying passages are the, are, are, are the essence of the whole lie. The first thing he does is introduce doubt into Eve's mind. Did God really say that? Did he really say that you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And then in verse 2, the woman said unto the serpent, may, uh, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. Now we talked a lot about what she left out and what she, uh, what she added to what, she's, uh, to what God had said. But we're not going to deal with that now. But she, but she said to, to, the, to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it, which is added, uh, lest you die. Now verse 4 gives us again more of the lie. 
And the serpent said unto the woman, you shall not surely die. Now God said they would die if they ate of that fruit. He's saying that God is a liar. That's part of the lie. God said, on the day that you eat of this fruit, you will begin to die. Remember we saw that very clearly from the Hebrew. You will begin to die. You will begin to die physically, but you have already died spiritually. And to cap off the lie, verse 5, he goes on to say, For God does know that in the day that you eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened. See, God's lying to you. He, he doesn't want you to have all this knowledge that he has. Well, if he has it, shouldn't we have it? And so your eyes are going to be open and you shall be as God's. In other words, you'll be like him. Knowing good and evil. That's the lie. And that lie has spread throughout so many different false religions. It spread through the corruption of the true faith in Jesus Christ down through the ages. It is spreading all the more in our day and time through new age philosophies and religions. You can be a God. You can have whatever you want. Think about it, create it in your mind, then it should just appear. But if it doesn't, something's wrong with you. Well, that's not Bible. That's not God's word. You know, I find it extremely significant that in our study in the book of Romans this past Wednesday evening, by the way, that is a commercial. I want you to let you know we're still in the book of Romans, still in chapter 1, still studying every verse. But this past Wednesday, we were looking at two verses in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. And that, in those two verses, I mentioned that these verses have been called the heart of biblical faith. I'll read them in just a moment, because they actually tie into what we're looking at today. But those two verses are called the heart of biblical faith. But our text today, verses 14 and 15, can be called the heart of biblical salvation. Because it is in verse 15 of Genesis that we find the first messianic uh, prophecy in the Holy Scriptures. The first messianic prophecy and promise in the Holy Scriptures. But let's go back to it. Let's, let's go forward to the book of Romans for just a moment in verse 16. Let's read those two verses and then add verse 18 and then make the tie from that to what we're looking at today. Paul says in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. To the Jew first, and also to the Greek or the Gentile. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. But now if you add verse 18, which we'll get into actually this coming Wednesday. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold or suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So think about verse 18 for just a moment. We have been told that Paul is not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God to salvation. And therein, in the gospel, is the righteousness of God revealed 
from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. But then he goes immediately into the bad news before he really comes to the good news. The bad news is the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Where did that begin? It begins in chapter 3 of Genesis. Who hold or suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Man is suppressing the truth daily. The truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ every day. Holding the truth in unrighteousness. Suppressing it. And that began in the garden. How do we know this? Jump down to verse 24. Now you can read between verse 18 uh, to where we're going to end here in verse 25, but uh, for purposes of time. Verse 24 says, Wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts, to dishonor their own bodies between themselves. And notice, and we've touched upon this earlier, who changed the truth of God into a lie, which is literally the lie. The lie. Of Genesis chapter 3 verses 1 through 5. The lie. What is the lie? Did God really say? Isn't he a liar? Doesn't he just want to keep you from becoming like him? Your eyes will be open. That's the lie. Who changed the truth of God into the lie and worshiped and served the creature more than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So now we see a greater tie between Paul's great letter to the Romans and Genesis chapter 3. Within looking at that whole picture we look at the heart of salvation. But as we've already mentioned in times past, God has prepared that. God, from the foundation of the world, has already a plan. By the time we get to verse 14. But let's look now at the curse that is given and the consequences that will be given. Verse 14. The Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. God curses the serpent and Satan. It is a twofold curse. The curse that the Lord imposed upon the seducer, because that's what he was. He came and seduced Eve away from the truth of God. He was a tempter, and he tempted Eve away from the truth of God. But the curse that the Lord imposed upon this seducer and tempter is actually twofold. For the serpent, now, just... Focusing upon the serpent for a moment, the creature that lent its body to the evil one to be the instrument through which the temptation would come, there was degradation to the dust. That creature was degraded to the dust. In other words, God commanded the serpent to slither on the ground instead of walking on legs like any other animal. 
Now, I don't know about you, and whether you love snakes, reptiles or not, especially snakes, whether you love them or not, uh, you know, it doesn't, it's not going to mean that you gain or lose your salvation either way. All right? Y'all understand that. <laughs> All I know is I don't like snakes. Unless the old song used to say, I don't like spiders and snakes. <laughs> not that I'm afraid of them, I just don't like them. But I, I realize that I'm not alone in that. A lot of people don't like them. Ooh, we go, ooh, you know. We saw some snakes the other day over at Cattlemen's in, uh, in their little zoo out there. and They've been shedding their skin, and you see all this skin out there, and you just go, ooh. Aren't you glad you don't shed your skin like they do? You know, weird. Oh, enough of that, enough of that. The silence, uh, the silent writhing motion of the serpent to this day forms a certain type of hieroglyphic. Have you ever seen where the snake goes? Kind of forms a, a type of hieroglyphic of undulations and coils written in the dust of the earth. Lines that typify menace, repulsion. For me and for many others, I think they're just a reminder of the curse. They're a reminder of the curse, greatly to be feared. Not the animal itself, what it reminds us of, the curse. The curse of God upon the serpent. Now add to this the curse upon Satan himself which is that declaration of war we spoke of. Verse 15. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Now, what was true of the serpent would be true with Satan as well. The biblical idea of eating dust signifies total defeat. And this is a biblical concept. It is a biblical principle. The, the idea of eating dust signifies total defeat. There are a few verses that we can look at to uh, uh, substantiate that thought. Psalm 72 verse 9 says, They that dwell in the wilderness shall bow before him, and his enemies shall lick the dust. That's pretty obvious. The enemy shall lick the dust. Defeated. Isaiah 49, verse 23. And kings shall be thy nursing fathers, and their queens thy nursing mothers. They shall bow down to thee with their face toward the earth, and lick up the dust of thy feet. And thou shalt know that I am, uh, know that I am the Lord, for they shall not be ashamed that wait for me. What a distinction, what a contrast. Once they're licking your feet, they're defeated. Licking the dust of the earth. Defeat. In Micah 7.17, they shall lick the dust like a serpent. They shall move out of their holes like worms of the earth. They shall be afraid of the Lord our God and, they, and, and, and shall fear because of thee. In his commentary on Genesis, Donald Gray Barnhouse writes this. He says, to eat dust is to know defeat 
And that is God's prophetic judgment upon the enemy. He will always reach for his desires and fall just short of them. That's speaking of the enemy. He will always reach for his desires and fall just short of them. There will be continuous aspiration, but never any attainment. And that is something that we realize is a mark of Satan. He aspires, he desires, he reaches, but he never accomplishes. You know, there are some people who think that, that hell itself is, is a place where you can do so much, but never attain what you want to do. That becomes a hell for some people. There is some sense of truth in that. Not as the TV commercials, you know, show us. Hollywood has their own ideas about spiritual things. The point of the matter is this. Satan on that day that God cursed him, on that day that God declared war upon him, he, the enemy, was defeated. Pure and simple was defeated. Now for us, we see that the battle rages on. We have to face the enemy many times, but greater is he that is in us than he that is in this world. Well, we know who is on our side. If God be for us, who can be against us? If we are with God, you know, we're going to be okay. And, and, but we need to stay there. We need to abide in Christ. We need to stay in, dwelling, uh, in a dwelling place with God. There's, that's where we're safe. The fact of the matter is, we know something, if, if we see the whole picture of what God has done from that day when he cursed the serpent, he's defeated. There is going to be no victory that Satan truly accomplishes. We know what his fate is, if you, we can use that term. We know what his destiny is. We know what his end is because of what the scriptures say. And scriptures have not lied. The word of God has never lied to us. So we can say that whatever has happened in the past that has taken place and we know it to be true will take place in the future. That will be true as well. Now in a sentence of curse and doom, Satan discovered that he had been too clever. You ever thought of yourself as being too clever? You confound yourself. Satan confounded himself. Because he fell into an ambush prepared for him from the very beginning. He thought he was getting all of this stuff done. Boom, he gets ambushed by God. Think about the cross. Think about the fact that he, there on the cross is the Son of God. There the one who said, I, before Abraham was, I am. And now he's on the cross. Does Satan have a victory? You tell me. I'll tell you this. Three days after Jesus died on the cross, he was alive again. No victory for Satan. Who won the victory? We did. We who believe in Jesus Christ. He won it for us. Now remember this about Satan. He sought to avenge himself upon God for having cast him out of heaven. But in so desiring, the evil one opened the way for the Lord God to settle the mystery of iniquity once and for all. 
The very planet upon which Satan had sought his vengeance would become the place for the final battle. And man, listen carefully, man would be the instrument of his defeat and doom. Man would be the instrument of Satan's defeat and doom. Question is, which man? You see, for God would become a man in order to accomplish that glorious end, that glorious goal. For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. The Son, who is the express image of the Father, the express image of God. The man, Christ Jesus. Satan defeated by man. Verse 15 says, I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Another great distinction to note at this point is that while the Lord did curse the serpent Satan, and then in verse 17 he curses the ground, he never cursed Adam and Eve. Some of you are probably thinking, what? He never cursed Adam and Eve. Now, granted, we'll see uh, in chapter 4, Cain is cursed. Chapter 9, Canaan is cursed. But here in this section, Adam and Eve are not cursed. But let's, let's, uh, let's read verses 16 through 19 of chapter 3. We read them earlier. We're not going to study them in detail until next time. But let's look at verse 16. Unto the woman he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and, thou sh- and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. And unto Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake. Now, again, we're going to look at this later, but I I want you to look at the verse, at that phrase, because it's astounding. Cursed is the ground for thy sake. For your sake, I curse the ground. Whoa. Wait till we get into that next time. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee. And thou shalt eat the herb of the field. <clears throat> In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread. Till thou return unto the ground. For out of it wast thou taken. For dust thou art. And unto dust shalt thou return. And again, Cain will be cursed in chapter 4. Canaan will be cursed in chapter 9. But it is clear in this section that Adam and Eve are not cursed per se. And let me ask you these questions. Is, is it a curse or uh, is it a curse to, to sorrow? 
I don't think it's a curse to us that we sorrow. We sorrow sometimes, we rejoice sometimes, but it's not a curse. Is it a curse to give birth? These are some of the things that God was mentioning in this statement. Is it a curse, is it a curse to give birth? Curses. Look at all of us curses here. Is it a curse? I understand that Sean last week was showing you baby pictures. The proud papa. I didn't see, I wouldn't have thought that I'd see any curse in that. We wouldn't have life unless we're born. Is it a curse to sweat through hard work or to eat bread after that hard labor? Not a curse, is it? Really? Some guys like hard work. You know, they go to the gym in front of those mirrors. I love to sweat. But anyway, we were sweating last week. Those guys that were at the, we were sweating in Carlsbad, man. I'll tell you, it was hot over there. But we enjoyed every minute. We just loved the fellowship. But it wasn't a curse. So, just a thought. Just a thought. Satan was cursed. The ground is cursed. And now the words found in verse 15 of our text, the words from God to Satan, because God is speaking directly to Satan. These words are actually called the first gospel. Well, it has been designated in the Latin as protevangelium, the first gospel. Protos, which is first, and evangelium, gospel. The first gospel. Because this is the first announcement of the coming Redeemer found in the scriptures. The very first announcement. I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, thou shalt bruise his heel. It is the first prophecy, and the first promise, and the announcement of that prophecy and promise of the coming Redeemer, the coming Savior, the coming Messiah. You see, when God declared war on Satan, as God is speaking to the enemy, as he's speaking to Satan, Adam and Eve heard the gospel message for the first time. They are hearing the gospel message for the first time. They listened with fresh hope to the very first promise as well as to the very first prophecy in the Bible. And it was significant that they heard that. That they weren't cursed. But that there was hope for them. And hope for mankind. And again, it was actually a prophecy that embraced both comings of Jesus Christ. A prophecy that embraced both comings of Jesus Christ. I mean, first of all, well, let's just say the second coming of Christ to crush the serpent's head. That is actually mentioned first. The second coming is mentioned first. Why? Because triumph will always outshine the tragedy. God always wants us to know that the triumph is coming. So he mentions the second coming first. That's the ultimate triumph over the enemy. The first coming of Christ 
represented by the bruising of his heel, is mentioned second, is mentioned next. For only by means of the cross, the bruising of the heel is a picture of the cross. And only by the means of the cross of Jesus Christ could the ultimate victory come. If Jesus does not come in flesh, if he does not come to be sacrificed on the cross on our behalf, if he doesn't come to be that atoning sacrifice for us, the propitiation for our sins, then there will be no hope whatsoever for man. So God just begins by reminding us the victory is already ours in Christ. And then he says this is how it's going to be done, by means of the cross. Without the cross, there is no victory. Without the cross, there is no triumph. Without the cross, there is no future. Without the cross, there is no hope. Without the cross, there is no fellowship with God forever. We need the cross. We need to understand the cross. We need to live in the shadow of the cross each and every day of our lives. And to the Lord's old covenant people, to the Jewish people, verse 15 would become a beacon of hope. And Paul would mention something to this effect in Galatians chapter 4. But it also speaks to us as well. But Galatians 4 verses 1 through 4, Paul says, Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, differs nothing from a servant, though he be Lord of all but is under tutors and governors until the time appointed of the Father. The Jewish people had to undergo their tutorship under the law, but the law pointed to Christ, but they didn't all see that. He goes on and says in verse 3, Even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world, but when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law. When the fullness of the time was come, that, that for us is a, uh, is a wonderful statement. I love using this particular verse, verse 4, at the time that we celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ, at Christmas time. This is a wonderful Christmas verse. But when the fullness of the time was come, at the very exact time when everything needed to be in place and in order, God knowing exactly that place, that time, that moment, at that time, God sent forth his Son. At the right, perfect moment. Because God makes no mistakes. He sent forth his son, made of a woman. The seed, you see, made of a woman. The seed. That we see back in verse 13 of our text. Uh, I'm sorry, verse 15 of our text. Made under the law. So to the enemy, Satan, it was that declaration of war which will eventually climax in his condemnation. Paul mentions that condemnation in Romans chapter 16, verse 20. He says, And the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. If he said that 2,000 years ago, how much closer are we now to that happening? When Satan will have his ultimate and final condemnation and defeat. It's very soon. And just as we sang today, so you better believe in that our God is an awesome God. You better be ready. The Lord Jesus is coming at any moment. 
And to Eve, it was the assurance, this, this promise in verse 15, was the assurance that she was forgiven and that God would use a woman to bring the Redeemer into the world. Consider Paul in speaking to Timothy and writing to Timothy in 1 Timothy 2, verses 13 to 15, when he says, For Adam was first formed, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. Notwithstanding, she shall be saved in childbearing, if they continue in faith and charity, which is love, and holiness with sobriety. The way we live, the way we are to live as believers in Jesus Christ. But it talks about salvation. Listen, Adam and Eve were not dumb for another couple. As, as we will see later on in chapter 3 of Genesis, God provides them with a new covering. We'll talk about that later. You all know what it is already if you've read through the whole chapter. Getting back to our text, let, let's examine for a moment the phrase, and I will put enmity between thee and the woman. Let's look at this phrase. I will put enmity, enmity between thee and the woman. The word enmity means hatred, antagonism, or hostility. Hostility is probably the best word uh, to understand enmity. I want you to consider its usage in other portions of Scripture. Romans 8, verses 5 through 7, for example. Paul says, For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. I think these are very clear distinctions for us to understand. Verse 6, it says, For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. I tell you this, God makes so many things so clear for us to look at, that if, if, if being carnally minded is death, and being spiritually minded is life and peace, I think we should choose being spiritually minded. Wouldn't you say that's the best way to go? If God makes so many things so clear, why can't we just move in that direction? Well, Paul kind of describes that in chapter 7. We're not in the book of Romans right now, but you all know that he says, the things that I desire to do, I don't do, and the things that I don't want to do, I end up doing. The war of the spirit and the flesh within us. But great is the victory through Jesus Christ. So surrendering to Christ. Anyway, let's, we, let's move on. I wasn't meaning to stop there. But in verse 7 he goes on to say, Because the carnal mind is enmity. The carnal mind, the fleshly mind, is hostility against God. Listen, I don't want to be hostile toward God. Therefore, I don't want to continue to think in a carnal way or in a fleshly way. I want to be spiritually minded. That does not mean I want to be so, you know, walk around with my hands clasped like this and, and hopefully a halo appears above my head. No, the understanding of all that is here and here. Especially here in the heart. If my heart is committed completely to Jesus Christ, then I'm going to live according to His Word. Be spiritually minded. Because I don't want to be hostile toward God. I mean, let's face it. Look what happened to Satan when he got into war with God. God declared war on him. He's defeated. He licks dust. 
for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. Let's move on to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. God uses, uh, I should say, Paul uses this uh, particular word again, uh, enmity there in verse 15. Verse 14 says, for he is our peace. The context here is that he's speaking about the fact that Jesus Christ brings together Jew and Gentile into one. And he says, for he is our peace. He is our peace who has made both one, Jew and Gentile, and has broken down the middle wall of partition between us. We sang that song today, let the walls fall down. It's an interesting thing that we did all of that. God put all that together. I didn't tell Sean, let's do these songs. He didn't know where I was going, but that's that the way God works. We're getting to see how God spiritually moves among us to show us that even the songs that we sing apply to what we're studying. He says, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, the hostility, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of two one new man, twain means two, of two one new man, so making peace, and that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby. So in that particular context, the enmity... is defeated. The hostility between Jew and Gentile is gone. And then James chapter 4 verse 4, a very crucial verse of scripture. James is addressing the church, but listen to what he says. He says, you adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship with uh, the friendship of the world is enmity or hostility with God. There were still people in the church who were having a friendship with the world rather than the fellowship with God. And he says, whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Well, that's, I tell you what, boy, you talk about drawing a line. That's enmity. That's hostility. And too too often we, as people, sometimes aim our hostility toward God in these ways. Let's hope that we don't anymore. Let's pray that we don't anymore. Let's determine that we won't anymore. But let's get back to Genesis and and the context that the word enmity is used here. Because there is always to be enmity between the tempter and the woman. For it is God who puts hostility between the serpent and between man. Because it is God who stirs man to oppose evil. We are to be hostile toward evil. We are to be hostile toward wickedness. We are to be hostile toward sin. It is God who says, I will put enmity between thee, Satan, and the woman. Now, while enmity is usually sinful, in this case, enmity against evil is a virtue. It is a virtue for us to be hostile toward the things of the, of the world, hostile toward the things of the enemy, hostile toward sin and wickedness. Believers in Jesus Christ are to be angry at sin and stand against all evil. We have smudged too much in our day and time the lines. But God's word never changes. And we need to stand for truth. We need to stand against all evil. We need to stand against all wickedness. Consider what Paul says in Ephesians 4, 26 and 27. Be ye angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath, neither give place to the devil. If you're going to be angry, be angry at sin, but don't be angry at each other. 
Don't let the sun go down upon your wrath, dealing with the wrath you may have against people or things. If you're going to be angry at anything, be angry at sin. And don't give place to the devil. Don't give place to the enemy in your life. Because once you begin to give place to the enemy, you're no longer being hostile toward the enemy. You're going to be hostile toward God. Now let's look at the next phrase in our text. And between, the seed, or in between thy seed and her seed. And between thy seed and her seed. So now seed is mentioned here. Speaking of course of offspring. Satan has offspring. Well, who are the offspring of the enemy? Who are the offspring of Satan? It certainly isn't uh, going to be anything in, in as far as uh, uh, combining, you know, Satan as, uh, uh, with, with, with flesh. But it would be those who have been influenced by Satan's pride and sin. Those who live after the lust of the flesh, for example. How do we know this? Because of what Jesus himself said in John 8, 44. When confronted by his critics, when confronted by those who couldn't understand what Jesus was saying about him and the Father being one. And the comment that Jesus makes to them is, you are of your father the devil, and the lust of your father you will do. He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own for he is a liar and the father of it. But that first phrase in verse 44, you are the, of your father the devil and the lust of your father you will do. So those who live after the lust of the flesh are in fact the offspring of the enemy. Paul in a, in a much better sense, if you will, in Romans 5.10, he says, for if when we were enemies, so as enemies of God, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God, but by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. But nonetheless, at some point in time before we came to Christ, we, we were enemies. We were just enemies of God. Again, if we put that together with enmity, then we were hostile toward God. Look, whether we wanted to believe it or not, we might have been religious, but we weren't in a relationship with God. We could go through motions of religion on one particular day and live for six other days all for ourselves. We would live six days in hostility against God, but one day to kind of see if maybe, you know, God will be kind. Too many people today, even in the church, think about balances. Well, if I could just be good and, and outweigh my bad, then maybe God will see that and, and let me into heaven. That's not the Bible. That is not salvation, as the Bible teaches it. Because there's no good thing that gets us into heaven. No good thing will get us into heaven. Only believing in the work of Jesus Christ, in the person and work of Jesus Christ, 
Colossians 1.21, And you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, offspring of the enemy. First John chapter 3, verse 8, He that committeth sin is of the devil. Now, let me clarify that committing sin in that particular context is in habitual practice and willfully committing sin. All of us, as, 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 even as Christians, all of us have some tendency. We'll, we'll be, we can be moved one direction or another at times. Then we realize it because of the conviction of the Holy Spirit. We want to come back to God. But there are those people who are com, uh, continually and, uh, and uh, constantly committing sin habitually and willfully. That's what John is speaking of. He that committeth sin in that sense is of the devil. For the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Well, who, do, who would do the works of the devil but the offspring of the enemy in that particular uh, uh, spiritual way? So that's the seed of the enemy. But what about the seed of the woman? Because the phrase is between thy seed and her seed. What about the seed of the woman? Now, that's an amazing statement. The seed of the woman. We might begin to wonder, the Lord, uh, hey Lord, did you, did you actually, uh, did you get something wrong here? How can you say the seed of the woman, Lord? Or maybe we didn't get it right. Because you see, if we know our physiology, we know that the woman does not carry the seed. Man does. We're not talking birds and bees here. We're talking men and women. Got it? You understand? Simple physiology here. The woman carries an egg, the man carries a seed. So what is this implying then when it says that uh, there is enmity between you and the woman, between thy seed and her seed? What is this implying? Let me just say in a nutshell that we have described for us in this particular verse the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. We have described for us the virgin birth of Jesus Christ, the seed of the woman, because a human birth without male seed has been described. A human birth without male seed. That is all God's doing. So when it says to us in the book of Isaiah that a virgin shall bear a son, that is... The fulfillment of this prophecy. And who is that son? It is the Messiah of Israel, Jesus Christ. Well, we're going to need to pick up from here next time because we're going to go into those other verses that we read earlier. But in closing, let me say that Satan would bruise the heel of Messiah. Some 2,000 years ago, Satan would bruise the heel of Messiah, but not with a mortal wound. Now you might argue and say, well, no, it was pretty mortal. I mean, Jesus did die, didn't he? Yes, he did. He came to die. But let me remind you again that on the third day, Jesus rose from the dead. Not much of a mortal wound. Jesus rose. Jesus was crucified. 
and he died on the cross. But we know that he rose again from the grave on the third day. And what did he do in doing that? He conquered death, triumph over tragedy. Triumph over tragedy. He triumphed for you and for me. And if you believe this, and if you do what Paul says to do in Romans chapter 10, when he says that you believe in your heart the Lord Jesus and confess with your mouth that he is risen from the dead, you shall be saved. You will be saved from what had begun in the garden, the stain of sin that has been upon each and every one of us, a deliverer was promised. The deliverer came. The deliverer has performed. The deliverer has conquered. And that conquering 2,000 years ago affects us still today. Because if Jesus comes back tonight, I know where many of us will be. But if you're not sure where you will be when Jesus comes back, you better make sure you know that today. Believe in your heart. Confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ, that he's risen from the dead, and you shall be saved. Let me leave you with Galatians chapter 3 because I want to kind of clarify from this point what we're going to deal with next time and, and following. But it has again to do with the seed. In Galatians 3.16 it says, Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not unto seeds, notice not plural, as of many, but as of one. And to thy seed, singular, which is Christ. So understand that that's what we see here in verse 15 of chapter 3 of Genesis. And this I say that the covenant that was confirmed before of God in Christ, the law, which was 430 years after, cannot disannul that it should make the promise of none effect. For if the inheritance be of the law, it is no more of promise. But God gave it to Abraham by promise. Wherefore then serveth the law? What is the law's purpose? It was added because of the transgressions, or because of transgressions, till the seed, singular, should come to whom the promise was made, and it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. The seed of the woman would put a final end both to sin and to Satan. And now suddenly... The earth, as we've been dealing with since January, with the creation. Let's, let's tie all this back into the creation. Suddenly now the earth assumes an overwhelming and awe-inspiring significance in the universe. Because it is here where the final battle takes place. It took place on the cross takes place in the final sentencing and execution of the enemy 
when Jesus comes again. From Genesis to Revelation, Jesus Christ is our salvation. Shall we pray?